One of the famous battlefields for Australian troops in World War I is France. In March 1918, it fell to Lieutenant Frank Bethune, who was actually a clergyman back here in Australia, in Tasmania. It fell to him to inspire his group of 20 soldiers in a particularly bloody battle of the war known as Passchendaele. They were the number one section of the third machine gun company. And when you hear in World War I of machine gunners, you know they're the fodder. Well, here in the face of the Germans, the Australians were clearly outnumbered and outgunned. Nearby British forces are said to have considered their position suicidal. But it was crucial to the rest of the Allies that that they at least try to hold the line. So Bethune gathered his men and gave them written orders. Can we bring up the next slot, the first slide uh, on the screen? There we go. These are the written orders. This is a photograph which the Australian War Memorial uh, has in its archives. You won't be able to read it, but if you look down the bottom, that's his signature, F.P. Bethune, and then I think it's Lieutenant at the end, OC, I guess that's officer in charge, number one section. This is what the orders say. This position will be held and the section will remain here until relieved. The enemy cannot be allowed to interfere with the program. If the section cannot remain here alive, it will remain here dead, but in any case, it will remain here. Should any man through shell shock or other cause attempt to surrender, he will remain here dead. Should all guns be blown out, the section will use Mills grenades and other novelties. Finally, the position, as stated, will be held. They held their position for 18 days until relieved. And those orders were circulated throughout the Allied armies in France because they were considered to be motivational In World War II, years later, they were actually produced on posters and displayed throughout England under the caption, The Spirit Which Won the Last War. You'd all agree that we need motivation at times and motivation in the face of strong, apparently invincible Enemy is what Christians needed late in the first century AD. It was about 50 or 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and churches had been established for a number of decades in the Roman province of Asia. That's present-day Turkey. Seven of those churches are recipients of a circular letter from John the Apostle. Another slide, please. You'll see this map on the slide that's coming up, and here it comes. So you see the churches there just above centre, Pergamon, Thyatira, and all seven of them uh, in that area. Just keep that slide up for just a little bit longer. It wasn't easy or safe serving Jesus as Lord when at the time there was a popular cult of emperor worship in the region. So you go around preaching Christ as Lord, which is presumably what John the Apostle did, and it gets you into into trouble with the authorities, and that led to John's imprisonment on the island of Patmos. On the map there, it's a dot in the middle of the ocean, too small to get land on a a map this size, but you can see that it's off the coast, uh, I think I read... uh, 
22 kilometers from Ephesus, the closest of the seven, the seven churches. Can we have the next slide? Here's a picture of modern-day Patmos. You see it's a pretty rocky place. So imagine when it isn't so green. It's not uh, the nicest place to live at times, though it does look rather nice in that photograph. John is on this island. Let's see verse 9 in Revelation 1. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Notice how John describes the Christian life here as the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. On the upside, they are members of Jesus' eternal kingdom, but it involves patience, patient endurance of suffering until that kingdom is finally consummated. The letter of Revelation isn't merely, though, John's attempt to encourage these Christians who are living this life of patient endurance and suffering while they await for Christ's kingdom. It's also a vision, a record of the vision, a revelation, I should say, of the vision from God the Father and the Lord Jesus himself. And you see that in verse 1 of the, of the whole book. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice it's a revelation from Jesus Christ. And as an aside, you'll sometimes hear in Christian circles people talk about the revelations. It, no, it's, it's actually the revelation, though there are a number of visions, as we'll see. It's a revelation from Jesus Christ given to him by God the Father and then conveyed by an angel to John. And notice that John describes what follows in the letter as a result of him testifying to what he saw. That's because John is going to be given visions. These visions are of ultimate spiritual re reality. They're sort of like going behind the curtain of life as we know it in, in our world, life as it looks. They're intended to open our eyes to the kingship and majesty of God, to the, the nature of the very real spiritual warfare in our world, uh, to God's judgments on evil and the ultimate outcome of this conflict. And the main theme that comes through, if you look over the whole of the book of Revelation, is that God rules history. He in his time will bring to it its consummation in Christ and those of Christ's people who have persevered through opposition and temptation will be vindicated and find eternal rest. Before we get to these big visions, though, Jesus has a specific word for each of the seven churches, some encouragement, some rebuke, and some warning. And for the rest of January, we'll particularly look at these words to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. But in chapter 1 today, they are reminded, we are reminded, why they should take notice, why we should take notice. There's two pictures of Jesus 
in chapter 1. There's firstly John's own description of Jesus' credentials and secondly, there's Jesus' revelation of his own credentials. Can I have another slide, please? This slide is of Rod and Jenny Chiswell. Rod is my best friend and was elected... It's not a great photograph. I got it from the website of the the Anglican Diocese of Armidale. Rod was elected the Anglican Bishop of Armidale a couple of weeks before Christmas, and he takes that role on in February. If you and I had been part of their election synod, I could have given you a description of what I believe are the credentials that will make Rod a great bishop for Armadale. But then you could have met Rod yourself and worked out for yourself his credentials, like his uh, congregation in South Tamworth uh, could do. And they would know him more deeply, in a sense, than I could describe him. You would know him more deeply than my description would give you if you met him and got to know him. Well, the two parts of Revelation chapter 1 kind of do that with Jesus. We've got John's own description of Jesus' credentials, and then we've got Jesus' revelation of his own credentials. So let's first look at John's own description of Jesus' credentials from verses 4 to 7. John prays for grace and peace to be given to the seven churches, from God the Father, verse 4, who was and is and is to come, from the Holy Spirit, and there's a a, a particular revelation um, thing here, that John loves the number seven. You see it all through Revelation in all sorts of different ways. But here, instead of just saying the one Holy Spirit, it's the seven spirits by which he means the one Holy Spirit. And also grace and peace from Jesus Christ. And then he gives this extended description of Jesus' credentials, which is aimed to strengthen the people of the seven churches in their faith and commitment. So let's see it. Verse 5, Jesus is the faithful witness. In his earthly ministry, Jesus witnessed or testified to God in all sorts of ways by his miracles and his teaching, and he even did it to death. So take Jesus as your example if you're experiencing pressure and rejection. Be faithful like him is the implication. Jesus, verse 5, is also the firstborn from the dead, meaning he's the one resurrected to be, verse 5, ruler of the kings of the earth. As the Christ, Jesus has authority over all the other rulers. So make sure you keep obeying him yourself. And in John's tribute in verse 5, Jesus Christ is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus is our loving saviour. He brought us from sin, death and judgment at great personal cost. So don't you dare imagine that he doesn't care about the struggles you have living as a Christian. Or don't think that being a Christian is ultimately a useless choice. We must have a great future if we've been saved from the penalty for our sins by the blood of Jesus. And right now, Jesus has already reconciled us to God and given his people a lasting identity and purpose. So verse 6, 
He's made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. It raises the question, doesn't it? That, that's your identity. If you're a Christian, you right now are part of his kingdom and you are a priest. So it raises the question, is your life recognisably devoted to serving God? It's your identity. Can you see here if you're a Christian? Notice it's all Christians, not just some specially selected people that the church calls priests. A priest is simply ultimately a servant of God and particularly has a role between God and the world. So we are a priest to the world on behalf of God through our efforts to live for God and make him known in our world. John's reminding the first century Christians and us of our special status in the world. And finally, Jesus Christ is the future judge. Verse 7, look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. They will mourn, it will be regret when they see the judge come if he isn't their Lord and Saviour. If you're someone in the first century or now who's struggling with being rejected for being a Christian or who's persecuted like brothers and sisters we know of in some other countries, be encouraged to persevere because one day when Christ returns, you will be vindicated. He will return. Don't forget that. I reckon John has done a great job in these few verses of setting out who Jesus is, from his exemplary life to his saving death, then his resurrection to rule and his ultimate return to judge. All those things, there's implications for everyday lives, for the Christians in the seven churches and for us. But Jesus, it's interesting in chapter in Revelation isn't happy to leave it at that. He knows that John and we need a bigger vision of who he is. And so in the latter part of the chapter, John is given a vision of who Christ is and it's bigger, it's more majestic. He sees his power and his authority but also his care. John describes this first vision that he has on the island of Patmos where he's told to write a description of the vision for the seven churches by a loud voice behind him. Verse 11, voice which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. When he turns, what does he see? And that's the point here. It's what he sees. He sees, verse 13, someone like a son of man. Now, when you hear that son of man, that's Old Testament code for ruler of the world. You saw in the reading that Catherine brought us in Daniel 7, there's this one like a son of man in Daniel's vision there, who after a succession of beast-like empires rise and fall, this one comes before God and receives an everlasting dominion that will never pass away and sovereignty over all peoples for all time. And significantly, this great person is seen standing among seven golden lampstands. 
In verse 20, we learn that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches of Asia. The eternal. So you get the picture. These lampstands represent each of those seven churches and you've got this eternal, powerful son of man standing among the churches, signifying what? Well, he's with them. And as the vision goes on, John realises that this figure is more than mere human. So verse 14, the hair on his head was was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. The, The descriptions there are more like the God figure in Daniel 7. So the words on the screen are of, you see, the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is described as having hair, white like wool. But here, this son of man, in verse 14, is the one with hair on his head that's white like wool, as white as snow. So this son of man is, in fact, God. And he has the fiery bronze feet of the conqueror, the thunderous authoritative voice like the rushing waters and the blazing all-seeing eyes which pierce and judge the hearts. Very godlike, don't you think? And he also has the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth like a tongue which represents the authority and justice of his word. And that final description, the shining face, reminds of the glory of God. This man is clearly divine, so it's no wonder that when John's confronted by this person, verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. Fear, shock, can't quite tell, but clearly this is an overwhelming experience for John. And then John discovers the identity of this one like a son of man. It's in verse 17 again. Have a look at 17. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Who is it who was dead and is alive forever? Who is that? It's none other than Jesus himself, isn't it? John's been given a vision of the majestic God the Son, Jesus Christ. If he's in any doubt that he's meant to perceive Jesus' deity from this vision, then Jesus' words, I'm the first and the last, they're so similar to words you might have noticed I skipped over verse 8, which God the Father says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And here's Jesus saying, I am the first and the last. It's unmistakable what's happening here. You know, if ever you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness who's telling you Jesus isn't God, ask them, have they read the second half of Revelation of chapter 1? It's unmistakable. Jesus, the majestic God, the Son, is with the seven churches, represented by their lampstands, and something else, notably holding, look at verse 16, seven stars. And we're told in verse 20 that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Don't you think that's a comforting image? Here you have God the majestic son, the majestic God the son, holding the angels. In other words, 
the churches represented by their angels are held securely in the strong right hand of Jesus. What we're seeing here in the first half of chapter 1 today is who Christ is and it should be for our strengthening. This vision in the second half of chapter 1 is like a painting, isn't it? Much of the book of Revelation is like a painting. It's meant to be used and enjoyed like a picture book, which is just as educational as those books with letters and words. When all is said and done, it may well be the images that stick with us long after we've closed our Bibles because our imagination as well as our mind is engaged by the vision so we can grasp these key concepts of Christian faith and living in the time until Jesus returns. Jesus wants the seven churches to see him in the same way that John does and that's why John's told to write down what he sees and send it off to the seven churches for their strengthening and challenge where necessary. Sadly, as we'll see in the coming weeks, for some of the churches, the challenge of facing the majestic Jesus is what they need more than the comfort. But what about us? Well, aren't you glad that this guy in this vision is on our side? We aren't one of the seven churches, but we are part of the kingdom and priest to serve God. We are people who've been freed from our sins by the blood of Christ. The encouragements and warnings of the book of Revelation are for us as well, as verse 3 of the whole book makes clear. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So blessed Rob Smith, who read our Bible reading today. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. I take it that the time that is near is the return of Christ, which is nearer for us than it was for John in the first century. Blessed are you if you will hear and take to heart what is written as we look over the coming weeks. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to take on board uh, this vision of the majestic Christ, that we would know him as God the Son and therefore be encouraged to trust him when it's hard and be encouraged to serve him when we lack motivation and obedience. We thank you for the truth that he is the one who has saved us by his blood. Amen. We are going to sing about the the wonderful Christ, the majestic Lord. Thanks, Rachel, Greg and Maya.